This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. If you could open your Bibles up to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And uh, it's kind of sad because I'm not going to be saying open your Bibles up to James anymore. We're wrapping it up. And uh, this book of the Bible has been really precious to us as a church. God's done some things, I think, in our midst as we've studied through this and definitely has had a significant effect on me. And so God, meeting with God through this author, James, each week, spent about 20 hours a week with this book or so, give or take. And so to be saying goodbye to it's kind of sad. But there's going to be a PS to this message, which I'll explain later. This is kind of a two-part message. Um, but today we want to finish the book by reading verses 13 through 20 in chapter 5 of uh, the book of James. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one one to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if any one among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for all that you've spoken to us through this book of James. Lord, we thank you for the truth that is alive, that we're not reading uh, dead words on a page, but living words breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And we just pray that you would speak to us today. And I pray the very truths that you present here would encourage your people, strengthen your people, heal your people, that you would work today among your flock here that's gathered to hear your word. So Lord, have your way in our midst. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and give me strength and clarity to declare your word truthfully to serve the wonderful folks here. And give us, Lord, fill us with your spirit and give us ears to hear what you're saying. And help us to be not only hearers, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the primary thrust of this concluding passage in James is is prayer. This is a passage about prayer. You don't have to be brilliant uh, to figure that out. If you just read verses 13 through 18 and look for repetition, you'll see that prayer is mentioned like seven times, once a verse, or maybe more than once a verse in that passage. So it's a passage about prayer, and it, it... it's, it, it fits in seamlessly with the passage that's just gone before it. Verses 7 through 11, which we studied, or 7 through 12, which we studied last week, is a passage about suffering. 
And in that passage, James talks about in the midst of difficulty and suffering that we are to be patient. And that patience and suffering involves waiting. Patience and suffering involves standing firm, he says. It involves persevering and remaining steadfast. So it's a passage about suffering. And here, he he turns and he talks about prayers. It's not detached from the passage on suffering. They're connected together. This is written to be read out loud and, and to flow from one section into another. So he talks about patience and suffering and then prayer and suffering. It's also worth noting that the book of James closes the exact same way that it begins. The book begins by saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various kinds of trials, right? So it's, the book starts with talking about, hey, you're going to find different trials in life. And when you do, count it joy. And then what does he say in the very next phrase? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So in the midst of your trial, if you don't know how to respond, you need the wisdom of God, then pray. So in trials, turn to God in prayer. That's how the book begins. The book ends exactly the same way. It ends by saying, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Verse 13. So there's this wonderful beginning and ending in the book of James that carry the same theme of turning to God. And this closing section, patience in suffering, prayer in suffering, I mean, I think we could summarize these last, what would it be, 7 through 20. These last 13 verses of the book could sort of be summarized with the idea that when you are suffering, be patient and pray, knowing that God answers prayer. That, that when you are suffering, be patient and pray, knowing that God answers prayer. Okay, let's walk through this text. We're going to walk through this text because there's Oh, it's kind of some thorny statements in here. So we're going to walk through this text pretty carefully, verse by verse, at, 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 at places, word by word, uh, to try to uh, explain what's going on here and uh, try to understand the emphasis that God has for us. Verse 13, he says, If anyone, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. I, I want to start with just talking about the word suffering. What's he talking about here? If anyone among you is suffering. The NIV, I think, translates it trouble. If any of you are experiencing trouble, if you are suffering, I would recommend that we take the broadest allowable understanding and application of this word suffering, because I think that's what James does in this letter. I think there's a danger in saying, hey, does my suffering just mirror exactly what's going on there? And if it doesn't, then maybe there's nothing for me in that. I think we would, that would be a mistake. Um, what's going on here for them at the beginning of the chapter 5 talks about uh, unbelieving rich landowners that are oppressing the poor, not paying them wages and defrauding them. So probably that doesn't relate to a lot of us in the room. And uh, so, you know, we could check out and say, well, I can't relate to what they're going through. But this is a broad view of suffering. In the verses just before what we just read, Job is brought up as an example of one who is steadfast in suffering. Think about Job. He had broad suffering. Um, he suffered financially. He lost all of his uh, livestock. He, uh, he grieved. He lost his family members. They died. So he's a man who knew the suffering of experiencing death of those around him. Uh, he had relational problems. His friends turned out not to be the greatest friends because they came with accusations and, and counsel that wasn't accurate and helpful. 
And so he had relational breakdown in his life. All of those are suffering. The passage we're looking at today is going to address sickness. That is a form of suffering. And the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, James says, Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That when we see suffering like this, we want to understand the context, we want to appreciate the original uh, setting, but I think we want to make the broadest application possible and not be overly narrow. And here's the reason. Because if we, if we compare ourselves with those in the Bible and say, well, I really don't, not experiencing suffering. Or we compare ourselves with those Christians in the two-thirds world today, we say, well, maybe I'm not really experiencing suffering. Or we look around the room at someone who has it worse than we, and we say, ah, well, I'm not really suffering. And if that's the case, then we won't respond as God calls us to respond. If it seems bad to you, then let's call it suffering, and let's do what the passage says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. See, in your suffering, you're not to be looking horizontal in comparison. How does my suffering compare with James's audience? How does my suffering compare to a, to a Christian in Africa? How does my suffering compare to the person on the other side of the room at Grace Church? We're to say, in my suffering, I'm not to be looking comparatively horizontally. I'm to be looking vertically to God. The very purpose of suffering is to press us to God. Not in analysis of how we rank. Let's go to God. And if, in fact, it's not really suffering and it's self-pity, God will sort that out. That's okay. He'll help us figure that out. But let's run to God in our suffering. Suffering is designed to to make us aware of our dependence upon God, to lean into God, to trust God, to open up to God, to cry out to God. Sometimes if we view our suffering as different, then we find ourselves with a different solution. And we want this solution. Run to God in prayer. In the midst of whatever seems like suffering, in your life. And like I said, if it's complaining, God will sort that out and help you figure that one out. Then you can repent of complaining. But you figured that out before God. That's the goal, is to receive help from God. Are you suffering? Pray. Not only that, but what does he say in the next statement? Let him, uh, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. On the other hand, if you're experiencing joy in your life, bring that to God as well. If you're suffering, come to God and pray. If you're cheerful, if your soul is buoyant, as we sang this morning, if if it's uh, blessed be His name when the sun is shining down on us, when the world is all as it should be, when it's the script or close to the script that you would write for your life for today, and you're cheerful, either the circumstances are good or maybe the circumstances are bad, but there's still a cheerfulness in your soul, a joy, then sing songs of praise to God. What's he saying here? He's saying that regardless of your situation, end up at the same place, God. If you're suffering, come to Him in prayer. If you're celebrating, come to Him in songs of thanksgiving and celebration. But live your life before God, pursuing God, relying on God, trusting God. John Calvin said of this verse, he said, there is no time in which God does not invite us to Himself. There's no time in which God does not invite us to Himself. What's the purpose of suffering? It's an invitation to God. What's the purpose of cheerfulness? It's an invitation to God. God calls us to Himself. Okay, there's a third group of anyone's here. The first is anyone suffering. The second is, is anyone cheerful? 
The third is, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you sick? Now, I want to take some time to talk about sickness, to talk about uh, prayer, to talk about anointing oil, to talk about elders, to talk about prayer of faith, to talk about healing. I want to talk about all this that's here right now for, for a little bit of time in this message. I want to acknowledge that I'm not going to say by any means all that the Bible says about the subject of healing. So that's the point, the, the part two. I, I'm going to teach on healing. And uh, we're going to have a, um, a consecrate, cons- well, hopefully it will be consecrated, but I was going to say concentrated is what I meant to say. But that was a good, a good slip. Not from, that was not a Freudian slip. I think that was a divine slip. We're going to have a consecrated and a concentrated um, a time of prayer for folks. Uh, when I teach on healing, I'm going to teach some now, but then I'm going to teach more broadly on the topic in two weeks. So here, and that'll be a PS to this, to this message today. So here's the schedule. Today we're going to talk about this passage in front of us. Next week, Dave Harvey is going to be with us. Dave is our friend um, uh, from Sovereign Grace Ministries who's in Philadelphia, and he's out with us once, twice a year, something like that. Uh, very gifted teacher and author, so we're excited to have him with us next week. So he'll preach next week. Then the next week I'll teach on healing again, and we'll have a, a ministry time and prayer for the sick. Then the next week is Easter. That's very exciting. Well, Good Friday service, then Easter, and then we're going to teach through the Ten Commandments. So that's what's coming up next. So it's Dave Harvey, Healing, Easter, Ten Commandments. That is the, uh, the order to come. So I'm not going to say everything that we said because I've got a part two where we're going to follow it with uh, a ministry time and pray for the sick. But let's talk about what he says here in this text. Is any among you sick? Is any among you sick? Sickness. What? is in view here. What kind of sickness is in view here? Well, I know I just said let's be as broad as possible. I think we should pray for all sickness, and the text is going to bear that out. But I think what's in view here in verse 14 is perhaps a serious sickness or perhaps a chronic sickness. few reasons I think so. First of all, he says, if any among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. This is an individual who doesn't go to the elders. This is an individual who calls for the elders to come to him or to her. And very likely that could be because this individual is unable or it's difficult to come to the elders of the church. Um, Given the the request in view, I think that would indicate that perhaps it's serious as well. Uh, Probably, um, you know, Johnny got a boo-boo on the playground. They're not bringing all the elders over to uh, pray over that matter. Not that boo-boos aren't significant, especially to said person who received boo-boo at a young age. It's serious, but that's probably not what's in view here. This person's calling for the elders of the church. Secondly, this person is not called to pray themselves. This person is not called to pray the prayer of faith himself or herself. This individual is called to have the elders pray the prayer of faith for him or for her. Now, of course, the Bible instructs all of us to trust God and have faith. But in this case, it is the faith of the elders that are in view in praying for this individual. So that could indicate this is a perhaps a weak person. Thirdly, the elders are called to come. Uh, this person is to call for the elders of the church. Now, the elders can invite themselves 
The elders can say, can we pray for you? But in view here, it is the sick person who's making the request and not the elders. I think it can go either way. Obviously, elders are free to ask. But here, it is the sick person that's responsible to make the request in this passage. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them, verse 14, pray over him. It's interesting language, to pray over the person. I think that's more... uh, I think that's probably more literal than just sort of metaphorical. It could be that praying over a person means that a person is bedridden, and the elders are literally praying over the person. And maybe it could be that the person kneels down or something like that, and the elders pray over a a kneeling or a sitting person. I suppose that's possible. It could be that the laying on of hands is in view, and so that's kind of praying over someone if you do that. I mean, so that that could be in view. But I think it's at least possible, if not likely, that this is a person that can't come to the elders, request the elders to come to them. This is a person that's not called to exercise faith, but it's called to have someone pray in faith for them. And this is a person that is calling for someone to pray over them, very likely because they are in a down position, so to speak, perhaps bedridden, perhaps on a couch or sitting or unable to really exert much energy or strength. So probably a person that is experiencing a fair degree of sickness. Okay, that's the sick. Who is doing the praying? In a minute, it's the whole church. But here, it is the elders who are praying. Let him call for the elders of the church. Well, who are the elders? In the New Testament, the elders are those who lead the church. And the word elder is used interchangeably with a number of terms, particularly in First and Second Timothy and Titus. The, the title of elder is used completely interchangeably with some other names that refer to the exact same group of people. Overseers. The elders are called overseers uh, in the pastoral epistles. The elders are called pastors. The elders are called shepherds. So, The elders, the shepherds, the pastors, the overseers, they are all the exact same group of people who lead in a plurality. There is not one elder. uh, There is a group, a plurality of elders who have a shared leadership, an equal and a shared authority and responsibility, what we would call a plurality in the life of the church. The elders are those who bring care, who bring oversight, who bring governance, who bring teaching to the church. And the primary way they do that is through teaching. That's the primary means of leading uh, the way that the elders lead, for they are called to meet certain character requirements to be elders, but they're called to really only um, exhibit one gift, according to um, Timothy and Titus. There are many character qualifications, but they're called to be apt to teach. So it is a teaching office it is also a caring, a shepherding, a, um, a ministering, a serving, a leading office. And here it is the elders extending what we might call pastoral care. This is kind of their shepherding function that they're here to pray for the person who is sick. So that's who the elders are coming to care for the one who is sick and to pray for them. They are to... Um, anoint the person with oil. Okay, verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him, that's the sick person, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing him with oil. What does the anointing with oil look like? This passage doesn't tell us. And interestingly, Anointing sick people with oil is only mentioned twice in the whole Bible. 
It's a biblical practice to be sure, but it's one that's not described very much in the Bible. The other place we get this, anointing with oil, doesn't give us a lot of description either. It's when Jesus sends out the twelve in Mark 6, the twelve disciples, it says, they went out and proclaimed uh, that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they placed oil upon them, they touched them with oil, they poured oil on them. Somehow this, this anointing, this use of oil and placing oil upon them occurred. It doesn't say what type of oil. It may have been an olive oil or something like that. Um, but they, they anointed people with oil, and here the elders are to anoint with oil. What is the purpose of the oil? Well, it doesn't really tell us that either, does it? Um, a few ideas have been offered. One would be that the oil was medicinal, that, that the oil had uh, a medicinal purpose, and so that this is the pastors coming with prayer and medicine, you might say. Um, the, the, the Good Samaritan uh, puts oil on the injured person um, who had been beaten and robbed, for instance. So some people say, well, it had a medicinal purpose. This is prayer and medicine. Probably not the case. I don't think what's in view here is that the elders come and they bring prayer and medicine. We believe in medicine. We value medicine. We thank God for medicine. We believe that God heals through medicine. So we're all for medicine. But I don't think what's in view is that you don't need elders to bring medicine. And the pastors of the church aren't going to come and we're going to pray and Rob's going to write you a prescription for an antibiotic. That's not what's going to happen. I don't think that's what's in view there. Your doctor can write that prescription. The elders can pray for you, okay? So I don't think it's primary, primarily have the elders bring medicine, though that would be fine. We, we're, we're for that. I just want to make that clear. Uh, secondly, some would say, well, maybe it's sacramental. That means that the oil is mysteriously and powerfully used by God as a healing agent, that somehow the oil is used in a miraculous way, and that when the oil is placed on the person, that it has inherent in it healing powers because God, you know, sort of changes the properties of the oil such that it's uh, miraculous in, in, its, in its usage. Um, I, I don't think that's the case either because the goal, this is all about a passage on prayer. This whole passage is that, that it's about to say that the, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power, not the oil. It doesn't say oil of a righteous person has great power. It doesn't say consider Elijah who used oil and stopped uh, the, the, the rain for three and a half years. It's a passage about prayer. It's a passage about the power of God through prayer. And the anointing with oil is in the name of the Lord. It is the Lord who has the power. It is the name of the Lord, the authority of the Lord that is to be brought to bear to the sick person. So I don't think it's saying that somehow it's medicinal. I don't think it's saying that it's sacramental, that the oil itself has power. So what could it be saying? Well, I mean, maybe there's other options, but it seems to me the primary option that would be left over is that it is symbolic in nature, that it's symbolic. We're not to be superstitious to feel like, boy, if I can just get a hold of that oil, that that has the power. God has the power. And in the Old Testament, when people, uh, leaders, priests, for instance, are anointed with oil, it is a setting apart of the person. It is a recognition of a setting of a part of an individual. Sometimes oil is used to symbolize the Holy Spirit as well. So what could be going on here is that the person is anointed with oil, representing that this person is being set apart, set aside for special attention, special focus before the Lord 
trusting that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the Lord, will work in this person's life and bring healing. We have examples elsewhere in the New Testament, the healing ministry of Jesus in the book of Acts, where people are healed by prayer without mention of oil whatsoever. So the Bible does relate that God answers prayer and that God heals and that that is not uh, that, that oil is not required. But in this instance, it's, 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 it's uh, called for. And so I think it's best to view that as something that would stimulate a person's faith in God. Not in elders, not in oil, but in the name of the Lord. In the presence of the Lord. In, in, the, in the Holy Spirit. As this represents the Holy Spirit. As this represents God personally touching an individual. That it could be used as a means to lift our faith towards God, and also a means of obeying the Scripture. There are certain things in Scripture that we might not fully be able to explain in every detail, but we obey by faith, and God honors that. So we certainly want to honor uh, this, this, this passage. Um, what is the result of this prayer? So the person calls, the elders come, the elders pray, they pray the prayer of faith, And then what is the result? Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The prayer of faith, this prayer that is given by the elders, will save the one who is sick. Now this word save can be used to talk about saving someone's soul from condemnation, saving someone from the wrath of God eternally. But it can also be used to talk about rescuing one's, one physically. It will save one's body. That's why the NIV translates this. I believe the NIV says, I don't have it in my notes here, but I think it says make well. The prayer of faith will make well the sick person, if I recall. So that's probably a good, good way to translate that. The idea is to make well the sick person. What an encouraging word this is. I mean, this is really, really an encouraging word. That a sick person in their need could call for prayer even if they're unable to pray themselves. Maybe someone else has to call on their behalf. Get the elders over here to pray. And that God would answer the prayer of fallible individuals who aren't praying by virtue of their piety, but just trusting the Lord. It's not that they're more holy, by the way. It's not that the elders are the holy people to come pray. If you look in Acts 3, there's a healing of a lame man, and when Peter stands up to give an explanation, he says, do not think that this person was healed because of our piety. He says that. This person was not healed because of our holiness, so do not get that idea. It's not that you call the holy people who've earned or merited something from God. It's that you call leaders to trust God with you, for you, that God raises this person up from their sickbed. I mean, it's a powerful, powerful word from Scripture. That a person is healed. And now this is not all the Bible says about healing. And I, I want to say, I think I need to be responsible and say a few other things. But before I say a few other things that qualify this to some degree, we, we need to at least look at this, on, let it stand on its own to start with, and say God does have a plan to heal sick people who are anointed with oil by prayer. This is not something, by the way, that the apostles were doing. We don't have apostles like the original 12 anymore, but every church is to have elders. Every church is to have Christians in the next verse that pray for one another. 
This is an ongoing thing. It's tied to the church praying for one another in the next verse. It's tied to the elders which we have praying for one another. God heals sick people. That is a glorious mercy and a glorious kindness. Now, does God heal every time? If this was the only verse in the Bible we had on healing, you might assume so. If this is all we had, then I think I could have the authority to stand up here and say, every time God heals, because that's the only verse we have. And he says you pray and the person will be raised up, but we have other verses. I mean, someone could say, well, maybe if someone's not healed, because they're not always. They're not always. So someone could say, well, maybe it's because the person didn't have enough faith. Well, that won't fly because the person's not required to have faith here. The elders are praying the prayer of faith, not the sick person. So maybe the elders didn't have enough faith. Yeah, perhaps. But you don't get the impression here that 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 they're saying, hey, based on the level of faith that the elders have, the person will or will not be healed. It just seems to be kind of a clear circumstance. But we know from experience and from Scripture that not everyone is healed. We know from experience because people die. And not only do people die, it's God's will for people to die. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his loved ones. It is God's will that you die because of the fall. If, if, he, if, if you live prior to his return, I mean, if you live, if you, what am I trying to say? If you don't make it to his return, you're dying. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Everyone here will die. Just, there's just no diplomatic way to present that news to you. Everyone will die. And everyone doesn't die by just closing their eyes and going to sleep and all of a sudden their body stops. People die because of the fall, because disease ravages their body. Frequently, that's how people die. And so sometimes you call for the elders of the church and they anoint with oil and then you call later for the elders of the church to bury the person. That, that happens. But not only is that experience just our reality, but the Scripture even talks about this. If, if it's the prayer of faith, and the person praying, the elders, if they have enough faith, the person will always be raised up, then there's a problem because this is not what happened in Paul's ministry. I, I'm guessing that Paul had more faith than your average elder. Uh, he had been to the third heaven. He was writing Scripture. Yeah, he probably was a little bit excelled in his faith level. And yet, Paul says things like this. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul tells Timothy to use wine for his stomach and his frequent ailments. Timothy didn't get food poisoning at the fair. Timothy didn't have a bad day. Timothy had frequent ailments. Frequent ailments. And Paul recommends what may have been a medicinal solution to to drink some wine and not water only, but some wine for his circumstance. Well, why didn't Paul just anoint him with oil and pray for him and he would 100% be healed and Paul, his faith is not in question? Well, because that was not the will of the Lord in that situation. Maybe Paul did anoint him with oil and prayer. We don't know. Maybe he did pray for him, but... He had frequent ailments. God doesn't always heal. Not always. 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, We left Trophimus ill at Miletus. Why, Paul? If you're in Miletus and you're there with Trophimus, why don't you anoint him with oil and pray, get the guy up and get him on the boat? Why do you leave him ill? Because Trophimus was not healed at that point. And remained ill to the point that he couldn't travel with them. 
on the trip and is left at Miletus. How do we figure that? I mean, is, can't Paul just pray? Paul did pray for some people and miraculous healings took place. But here's two of his coworkers are not healed. And so, how do we deal with that? Or Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, his thorn in the flesh, it does not tell us that his thorn in the flesh was a physical ailment, but it was suffering. And in response to his prayer for suffering, the answer he received is, my grace is sufficient. That, sh- that my power will be demonstrated in your weakness. So Paul is not healed of whatever the problem is, may or maybe, it may or may not be physical suffer- uh, illness or suffering. We don't know. So, Why is that? Well, Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, your will be done. And that's how we pray. God, your will be done. Do we call for the elders of church? Yes. Do they pray for healing? Yes. Do they ask God, God, would you please heal this person? Yes. That's how we're told to pray. But whenever we pray, our requests are always punctuated with God, we submit ourselves to your will. Your will be done in this situation. And if it's God's will, the person will get out of their sickbed. Or if the will is what it was evidently for Timothy for a season, or Trophimus for a season, they'll be left in Miletus, uh, or they'll still battle the frequent ailments. We don't know, but we pray and we ask in faith. This is not to quench faith by saying God doesn't heal everybody. It's just to be true to the whole of Scripture. I mean, I've heard people say, well, if you pray, God, uh, you know, if it's your will or your will be done, that, that that quenches faith. Nonsense. It redirects faith. Faith is not my pronouncements. I don't have faith in my pronouncements or my desire or my prayer. I'm to have faith in a sovereign God. It doesn't quench faith. It redirects faith where it belongs which is God. So how do we balance that? Well, we're not hyper-Calvinists that just say God will do whatever He wants, so there's not even a need really to pray for healing. God's going to do what He wants. We're not over here in the Word of Faith where it just says, hey, we're just going to pray and it has to happen. we got a verse right here. Uh, we're going to ignore some other verses, but we got this verse. So we don't just say, what I pray and I claim will happen, and we don't say, well, it doesn't really matter if we pray or not. God's going to do whatever He wants. The biblical balance is we pray, God passionate, heartfelt, desirous, compassionate with those who are suffering. And we say, Lord, would you please heal? And we seek to obey the Scripture and anoint with oil and pray and ask and request and cry out. And we pray, Lord, your will be done. And if you don't heal, would you grant sustaining grace, which He will, grant sustaining grace. And we ask you to move in that way. See, it's a work of the Spirit if the person gets up out of the bed is, is, is raised up, is what he says here. The Lord will raise him up. That's powerful. That's a work of the Spirit. But I also want to say that if God does not raise him up and instead gives him a cheerful or her a cheerful heart to persevere in a sickbed and to proclaim the glories of Christ and to thank their Savior and to love Jesus while they are ill, that is a work of the Spirit too. For if the Spirit is not working, they will not praise but curse God. They will not celebrate but complain. They will not give thanksgiving but grumble. That is a work of the Spirit, sometimes a more powerful work. So we need to bear all of this in mind. Pray by faith, trust the Lord, and leave the results with Him. I think that's the biblical approach if we consider 
all of Scripture. Okay, then he says, a prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What does this mean? If he has com- of course he's committed sins. Of course he's committed sins. Everybody's committed sins. Well, probably in view here is if he's committed sins that are connected with his physical suffering. If he's committed sins, the Lord will forgive those. That there may have been sins committed that are connected with his suffering. Now, we want to be very careful because this is... Uh, we just need to have precision and nuance when we're talking about this subject right here and just not be making bold, rash statements because people can get harmed by that approach. Does sin contribute towards our sickness? Um, the book of Job, the point of the book of Job is to communicate that righteous people suffer and you cannot connect their suffering at all times with a direct line to a sin committed, right? That Job followed God and God uh, allows Satan to affect him and he gets very sick, covered with boils. And the whole point of it is to say he didn't do anything that brought this on him. There's a mystery. God is sovereign. He is greater than our understanding. Where were we when he created the universe? And Job, at the end of the story, says, I had, I had heard of you, but now I see you. I understand you. So it wasn't, you, you couldn't just simply say, you do A and B always follows. There's just not a direct cause and effect relationship between an illness and a particular sin that committed that caused that illness. The book of Job says, you can't do that. You can't make that assumption. Because God is greater and his plan is mysterious and you just cannot assume that. Or, or for, for instance, um, think about Jesus in John 9, I think it is, where Jesus says, uh, the di- disciples ask him, hey, why is this person blind? Is it his sin or his parents' sin? That was their assumption. Is it his sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? What does Jesus say? Neither. Nice try. Got a consolation prize, parting prize for you in the back, but you're wrong. Neither. This is so that God could be glorified and he healed them. So the assumption that somebody sins so they're blind is just not accurate. On the other hand, you know, we could think of some extreme examples that, um, or some more extreme examples where we would just think about human experience. You know, what, what if someone, uh, as a lifestyle, abuses alcohol, abuses to the point of drunkenness as a, as a lifestyle, and then ends up with some type of liver disease? Well, then we would say, well, some of their actions affected them, or a sexually transmitted disease. Sin could contribute um, to that. Or, or someone who is, um, you know, bitter, has a life, a heart of bitterness and anger, and then they end up with blood pressure problems. Now, I'm not saying if you have high blood pressure here, we're not going to start with, oh, you're angry. What are you mad about? Huh, huh, huh? We're not starting there. We do, again, we're going to be careful we don't make that connection. When somebody announces, we're so-and-so at care group, Oh, they're homesick. I knew it. Yep, I knew that sin was going to catch up with them sometime. You don't have the prerogative to assume that you know that their impatience is why they have the flu right now, and you're going to, you can't do that. But it does happen that certain sins... Or what about someone who has a lifestyle of worry and ends up with an ulcer? Or what about someone who has a lifestyle of gluttony and then ends up with maybe, I don't know, heart disease or diabetes? 
Now, everyone who has heart disease, again, you hear what I'm saying. You can't always draw that, but there are times when one's personal sin can contribute to one's personal sickness. Or here's a biblical example, and not just um, look at the world around you examples like I just gave. Here's, here's an example from Psalm 32. Here's what David says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Okay, you're blessed if your sin is covered, if your transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Okay, blessed is the forgiven person who isn't deceitful about those sins. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He closes by saying, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in the heart. In heart. Do you see what David's saying? I sinned. My sin was, was, was not open. It was deceitful. And the result of that was that my bones wasted away. I was wearied, actually physically wearied, groaning all day. Now that may be, there may be some hyperbole there. I don't know, but he was groaning. He was, there was just a, ugh, a pain that he experienced from covering his sin. Day and night your hand was upon me. My strength was dried up. He was fatigued and depleted. In his case, a cause of that was unforgiven sin. Deceit, even, he goes on to say. So, is everybody who has a chronic weakness or something have unforgiven sin? No. No. That's not what the Bible says. But can unconfessed sin, can living with hidden sin, can holding in our sin rather than acknowledging and confessing it have a physical effect on someone? Yes, it could. And David was a case in point. So what he's saying is if there are sins that are contributing in some way, obviously he's going to talk about confession next. Confession and prayer will forgive one's sins. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So he's saying because of this, live a life of openness. Don't be Psalm 32 when David was there. Live a life of openness. Confess your sins. Pray for each other. Pray that God will heal one another. Pray that God will heal one another. That's, that's kind of a lifestyle that he's talking about. Do you see how the prayer is working here? He started with individual prayer. Are you suffering? Then you pray. Are you happy? Then you sing a song. Are you really sick? Then you call for the elders to come to you if you can't go to them. Bring the elders to pray for you. And now here's congregational prayer. You pray for one another. Confess your sins, he says, and you pray for one another's healing. Pray for one another that you may be healed. So this is a lifestyle. So all kinds of prayer here. Individual, private prayer. At times, leaders praying as a lifestyle confession and everybody praying for one another. Sundays at the care group, on the phone during the week, whatever it is, pray for one another. This is so telling because James talks a lot in his letter about the abuse of the tongue 
and speech that is like a fire. He says you can say words that are slander, judgmental, gossip, and like a fire. It rages in destruction. Or you can use your tongue to confess your sins and to pray for other people's healing. It's our choice how we use our tongues. This is a beautiful use of the tongue. Where I confess my sin, not yours. Beautiful use of the tongue. Where rather than cursing and judging you, I pray for your healing. Beautiful use of the tongue. Where rather than suspicion and you know the, the, the quarrels that we have among ourselves, he says, why are there fights and quarrels in your midst, he says, because of these competing desires. So rather than using my tongue to promote myself and to be a a venue for my own selfishness to reign, I can use my tongue to pray for you. I can use my tongue to speak of my faults and not yours. That's a right use of the tongue he's talking about here. And what happens when we do this? Well, look what he says verse 16. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He's encouraging us to pray. There's a lot of benefits in prayer. Recognizing our dependence on God, benefit. Communion with God, benefit. Waiting on God, benefit. But here's a benefit that simply is this. Prayer works. I mean, standing on its own, that almost sounds crass. But if we, if we put that, if we put that in all the Bible says about prayer, communion with God, worship of God, hallowing God's name, glory of God, we must put this category in there. Prayer works. That's what he says. The, right, the prayer of the righteous. Well, I'm not very righteous. If you're a Christian, you've been declared righteous because of Jesus' death on the cross for you. Because of the obedience of the law, that Christ obeyed the law, that's credited to you. If you're a Christian here today, you're declared righteous. And you're in this category. The righteous person. You do not merit things from God by your holiness. You do not win enough holiness points that you can then redeem those and cash those in for benefits from God. That's not how it works. We're dependent upon God. We rely upon God. We cry out to God. We come in the righteousness of Christ. That's why we pray in His name and not our name. We come in His authority. We come because of His work as sinners who don't deserve anything but wrath. And we ask in faith and God answers prayer. And He, he, he responds. He answers prayers of faith. Even imperfect faith. God answers those prayers. They, are, they work. But they work as a gift of God's grace. We don't manipulate. We don't earn. We don't connive. We receive a gift of grace. That's what it is. But it works nonetheless. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Great power when you pray and you're suffering. Great power. Great power when the elders pray over someone who's really suffering. Great power when you confess your sin and pray for one another. If there's great power when a righteous person prays, great power as it is working, then what happens when the family prays? What happens when the whole care group gets together? And rather than have divisions, which James is talking about, what if the whole small group, rather than having fights and quarrels, which is what he talks about in chapter 4, what if the whole group comes and prays? What kind of great power would there be in a room full of people who are declared righteous praying? What would happen if the whole church prays? What would happen 
If people gather on Thursday mornings here at 6.30 down the hall in the conference room, you're invited, invitation in the middle of the sermon. What if you come and we pray? There's great power in that because God is powerful and God by His grace answers the prayers of needy, sinful people like you and me to display His power and to display His grace, to make much of His glory. Because there's a story to tell when God answers prayer. When the person gets up out of the sick bed, the story is, look what God has done. Now, I would also want to say when the person stays in the sick bed and testifies to the greatness of God, there is also a testimony, look what God has done. But God answers prayer. That's his whole point. He points to Elijah. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. If you read Elijah's story, you say, yeah, he did some great things, but he was messed up like us. He was a depressed guy. I mean, he was a negative guy, wanted to give the whole thing up. I mean, he had his battles just like you and I do. Elijah's a lot more like us. Elijah's a lot closer to us than he is to Christ. You know, he had sins like we do. And so he says, Elijah was just ultimately a regular guy like us who has his problems, who has his doubts, who gets depressed, who gets Eeyore. Oh, you know, woe is me. Gets that thing going. That's Elijah. Yet Elijah, this very human guy at one point, God was bringing a drought because of Ahab's sin. And Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't for three and a half years. And he prayed again, and it rained. And the point is that human prayer, divine results, human requests, divine activity. That's what he's saying. Great things can happen when people rely on God and trust in Him. God may do amazing things through the prayer of His people is what he's saying. See, this whole last section can be summed up. Be patient. When you are suffering, be patient and pray because God answers prayer. Be patient and pray because God answers prayer. Pray in your individual life when you're suffering. Praise when you're experiencing blessing. In certain instances, call for the elders of the church to receive prayer and anointing with oil. As a lifestyle, always be confessing our sin to the appropriate people, you know, for the appropriate reasons. But be open, let's at least say that, let's be open and humble about our lives and pray for one another's healing because God answers prayer. It's mighty, powerful in its working. Don't fight with each other, pray for each other. Don't start a fire with your tongue, bring healing with your tongue. That's what James says. And then there's this closing, the last two verses. It almost seems curious. Why is this in here? Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, the whole book of James has been about receiving the gospel, believing in Jesus Christ that He died for our sins, that He was resurrected, and that when we receive that word of the gospel, it is to affect a change in our life. We're not to be hearers only, but hearers and doers. God does a work in us through the gospel. gospel. The gospel, when we believe the gospel, that means we have a living faith, not a dead faith. That means God will transform our character that we'll be hearers and doers. But sometimes, people in the New Testament, they're addressed in most letters of the New Testament, wander. Sometimes you wander. Sometimes I wander. Sometimes people wander from the truth. And it is just a, it's just the reality of Scripture that sometimes 
people wander. If anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, will cover a multitude of sins. See, he's saying that we're all called by the gospel, empowered by the gospel to be hearers and doers. But there's times people are going to take another pathway. And when they do, you have options. You have sinful options. You can, you can go James 4.11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. That's an option. Someone can want, not a good option, but someone can wander away. We can judge them. We can slander them. We can speak evil about them. James would say, don't speak evil about them. Go after them. Don't speak evil about them. Call them back. Don't expose. Uh, and we, we do need to talk about people's sin at points. That's, that's necessary. But don't expose their sin. Cover their sin by the blood of Christ. If you bring them back, it will cover a multitude of sins. Don't seek to be a judge that would speak evil against people. Seek to call the wanderer back. And if you do that, you don't speak evil against them. You cover their sin. He's saying, hey, when someone doesn't live up to all that we read, and they are a hearer and not a doer, and maybe they become where they're not even a hearer anymore. They just start drifting away. We all know people like that. A lot of us have been that person. I had a season in my life when I was quite a bit younger where that was me. I was away from the church for a season of my life. And uh, one person in particular really reached out to me and rallied around me and stuck with me, and it made such a difference. Some of you have coworkers or family members or friends or care group companions that are, that are wandering. James would say, hey, be a hearer and a doer of the Word. Seek to apply truth to your life. Ask the grace of God to change you so that you walk out your faith. But realize you may not always do that and you hope someone comes after you and realize that there may be someone around you right now that's wandering. So love, reach out, confront where necessary, warn where necessary, be patient always, serve, listen, care, love, sacrifice, pray, talk, bless, surprise, whatever it takes to communicate the grace of God, whether through gentle encouragement or at times sharp warning. Reach out. Don't let them go. Because if you do, you'll save their soul from death. And if you do, you will cover a multitude of sins. As as they come back to Christ, their, their sins are forgiven. And they're restored and renewed. They're, we could say, healed spiritually as they are returning. They're responsible. I mean, sin. They've sinned. But there is a, restor- a healing in the sense of a restoration to God and His people. So James says, hey, when people wander, and they will, all the stuff I've said in the previous five chapters, seek to draw them back in. Don't just let them go. Don't be self-righteous. Well, I figured. Yeah, I could see that one coming. I could see that one coming. No, I'm staying here with the faithful. That's for me and my house. Yeah, no, go and reach. Well, stay faithful for sure, but go and reach out to them. That's what he says. So when you're suffering, be patient. Christ suffered on our behalf and sustains us in our suffering. Pray in your suffering. 
Pray in your suffering. God demonstrates His power by answering prayer. Often by healing. Other times by sustaining through suffering. Pursue the wanderer. And in all of this, know that God answers prayer. God responds to the cries of His people. God responds to the cries of His people. I I feel that God is calling us to a season of trusting, believing, and expecting God to move in people's lives in, in more radical ways, in healing, in power, in sustaining people, in care that's expressed through prayer, in humility that's expressed through confession of sin, in faithful going after that's expressed in, in seeking to call the wanderer back to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things being expressed here. May God work them in our midst and glorify Himself. Let's pray. God, we are a needy people here today. We get sick because we're human, sometimes because we sin. Lord, we get discouraged. We suffer. Lord, we we wander. Lord, sometimes we're self-sufficient and don't consider the power of You in sustaining us through prayer. Lord, we just confess that we are a needy lot and we thank You that You delight to work in the lives of needy people because that platforms Your power, not ours. And so I pray for that today. I pray, Lord, that You would meet us as a church, that You would sustain us, that You would help us. I pray that You would protect any potential wanderers in the room right now from wandering. And I pray that those who are in the midst of wandering, that we might draw them back in by your grace and your power. I pray for the chronically ill in our midst, that you would deliver them from their sickness, that you would heal them, Lord. I pray especially as we meet in a couple weeks to even revisit this and to pray specifically for the sick, Lord. I pray that you would bring healing, your healing power to our people. I pray that you would sustain us all and strengthen us all today, God. I pray that the cheerful in the room would be singing songs of joy to you, not taking credit for their own cheerfulness, but looking to you for all your joy. Lord, I pray that we'd be patient in the midst of suffering, that you would help us to wait on you and to look to you. I pray that there would not be a circumstance in our life that we're not apt to look to you and bring to you and trust in you. So thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. And we just invite you as a people to express your presence and your power in more demonstrable and pronounced ways in our fellowship. I pray that, God, that the very things we read of in Scripture would be our experience for your glory and for our good and for the good of those who have yet to meet you. May there be testimonies of grace all around. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.